<clears throat> well, I think we should probably begin because um, you know people might filter in, but I think um, there are many, many events going on on campus today, and I think um, you know I, Dr. Patek herself mentioned her her interest in going over to an event at the I House later. So I will start so that we're done by then. Um, so thank you everyone for coming. Um, I'm going to, I have the honor of introducing Dr. Surya Shikha Patak, or Shikha as we have been calling her, uh, and as she likes to be called, I gather, I yeah, hope. Yeah, it's easier in that sense. <laughs> um, Dr. Patak is a senior Fulbright Fellow at the State University of New York uh, at Oswego, at SUNY Oswego. Um, she's visiting this year, 2008-2009, and um, her her regular job is as a lecturer in the Department of History at Assam University in India. Her doctoral research was on tribal identity politics in colonial Assam, uh, which she received her PhD from um, the Center for Historical Studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University. She's now moving into different areas of research, and she's currently working on a project known at, called Gendered Encounters, the American Baptist Mission the American Baptist Mission Women in Northeast India. Um, and as part of that, she says she's been living in uh, seminaries all the way across many different parts of the world. Yeah. And just to add to that, we've put you up in a seminary yeah. tonight. So um, there we go. We're I helping your research. Like God's We're helping direction. your research, yeah. <laughs> thank so you. On that note, uh, welcome and uh, thank you. Thank you uh, for coming and willing to listen to me because I think this is. This has nothing to do with my work. It says that if somebody asks me to talk or notice it, I just begin and I don't know where to end. So it might be that's that I'm going off track or I'm really talking about, uh, I might not keep track of time. Please remind mm -hmm. me if I'm go going overboard. But it's, um, I'm happy to talk about the region where I come from. And though uh, post-colonial India is uh, never been a trust of my work. It's, it's just that uh, after, my, after I began my PhD, I gradually started look, understanding the connections that the movements that, that are going on right now in Northeast India and between history and appropriation of history, which is so very important. Uh, that kind of propelled me towards reading more and understanding more. Uh, that is a part of, this is a part of that effort. Uh, I'll begin with a story. Around five years back, this, um, this boy comes, young boy, around probably 20 years old, comes to my home in Guwahati, and he is going through some legal problems, and my parents, being lawyers, were advising him. My mother out asked him out of concern what he plans to do in life, and he, uh, I, we thought it was, uh, for, for me at least, it was quite a surprising uh, answer um, that he said, I'm going to join the Hongatan. Um, Sangatan in the sense of an organization, and not meaning the RSS, but the Alpha. Uh, so why, why, why is a Northeast so, so, such a different case, or is it any different from rest of India? If you look at uh, the post-Indian nation-making processes, it's the, the transition from colonial India to post-colonial India is not smooth. In fact, there are states like Princess states like Hyderabad, which um, Asked for separate, uh, separate, uh, sep separate identities, 
the northeast um, do we the, the largely the political discourse is that the northeast stands out as the one who has been continuously articulating their differences with mainland india and asking for autonomy cessationism um, separate statehood etc etc so the, the, the so the transition, the emergence of modern nation states at the end of colonialism and um, the development of uh, new states out of that has always been fraught with tensions. And these tensions are nothing new to the Northeast, uh, and it is probably something that the state has to deal with. Uh, it's also the constitutional framework that I'm trying to check here um, is is the Indian Constitution equipped enough? Um, to deal with post-colonial nation-making, nation-building processes? Uh, if so, is, is the other conditions of the Constitution enough to deal with complicated situations of multi-ethnic societies and governance? Uh, these are the two basic, basic questions that I'm trying to check in the paper, in the presentation. Uh, the Northeast India, uh, as you probably all know, that is one of the most turbulent regions as seen by the Indian state, and it consists of seven states. Um, it's in that corner towards the east, and these are the seven states. So Sikkim has been included into it as a developmental area. It's a rec recent addition. So when I talk about Northeast, uh, I'm not Despite um, being, being um, you know, in the pain of being simplistic, it's not a homogeneous area. It's a quite varied region. There are, there are almost 294 communities. Um, out of that, 194 communities have been recognized by the Indian Constitution as scheduled tribes. Uh, and also, it is also the home of at least 30 major militant groups. Uh, This region, therefore, has been a frontier region for a long time. It has seen migrations from various areas, and the migrations are not necessarily from the southeast or east, but also from mainland India, the rest of India. Uh, it has been almost like a highway of exchange of ideas between uh, southeast China, Myanmar, southeast Asia, and India. There are various communities, and it's a little archaic classification, but there are communities that probably speak Sino-Tibetan languages, Tibetan-Burman languages, Austric languages, Kukichin language groups, and also uh, the, the Aryan or the Hindi belt inference is also there. This is, of course, uh, not a classification that I subscribe to, but it's easier to explain. It is, therefore, not just racially, uh, very varied, but also linguistically. And um, these affinities that are there are, have become blurred over time, and no one group can clearly, uh, despite the various articulations, say that it is a separate group by itself. There is a lot of intermixing of languages and groups happening there. The issues that I'm going to deal with, I'm talking about two states, Assam and Nagaland. I'm looking mainly into the Assam movement and the fallout of the Assam movement, which was continued by this armed militant group called the United Liberation Front of Assam, the Alpha. And then I'm going to talk about Nagaland, 
and how the Naga National Council and its negotiations with the Indian state led to a movement, foundering of the movement uh, led by the, uh, the Nationalist Socialist Council of Nagaland. The demands that have been, the, a variety of demands that the various peoples of our communities and states of North have been uh, asking for, beginning from cessation from India, autonomy within the framework, constitutional framework of India, linguistic nationalistic movements, uh, movements for separate statehood uh, to be carved out from what used to be colonial Assam, um, the notions about indigenous and outsider uh, notions of homelands, ethnic homelands, uh, notions about how the constitutional six schedule status can be implemented and what are the extents of its implications and uh, the boundaries within which it should function, uh, notions about territory and boundary disputes, and also about resource sharing. These are, of course, overlapping concerns, and not one moment can say that it is this ascribed agenda that it deals with. What's also interesting is that um, along with all this demand, there is a, it is strategically very important. Uh, it's an interesting India area for India because it is connected to India through that narrow um, land mass, which is there in West Bengal. And uh, it's surrounded by China, Myanmar, Bangladesh, and Bhutan. And this has always been, again, an interesting consideration for India at some levels. Um, it has also made this area, therefore, an uh, easy area to access arms, narcotics. It's, it's a part of the Golden Triangle in that sense. And it's a lot of uh, arms marketing happened through the area. It's, it's in that sense. Um, it has been easier for the moments that to have access to military weaponry. Um, the region has witnessed in the last 60 years various moments, which have become almost endemic in its nature and have been becoming more and more violent. Uh, so conflict or insurgency, as the Indian state sees it, has become almost inexcusable. It's an essential part of the short history of the re, uh, region's um, integration or as a part of India. Uh, the violence has led to human loss of human lives. It has led to a lot of violation of civil and human rights, uh, displacement, refugee problems, uh, movements of people from one part, part of, uh, to another, destruction of the civil society fabric, and also a total disruption of the political processes that were going on, and destruction of developmental infrastructure, which has been initiated uh, through the initiatives of the Indian state and also of the state governments. Uh, therefore, uh, the issues that confront the region, Northeast, the states, and also the Indian nation state are Manifold the and implications of its uh, of those problems or the or those issues with the Indian state is also therefore severely uh, complicated. Within uh, the basic uh, regions or agendas of conflict that I mentioned, there are also 
beginning from the 1980s onwards in intra and intertribal conflict which has been escalating um, conflicts between uh, outsiders and insiders escalating and the definition of insider and outsider the indigenous has become very very fundamental to um, either resolving conflict or escalating it there also has been um, tremendous communitarian and communalization of the politics over time from 1980s onwards uh, and um, I'm going to focus on two notions. One is the notion of territoriality and how territoriality and indigeneity as an idea kind of collapse together in the Northeast and give rise to a lot of problems which therefore manifest itself in uh, demanding constitutional status, resource sharing, etc., etc. Um, let us begin by looking at how identities in the Northeast function like if you ask me who I am today probably I will have at least two minutes I need two minutes of thought to say am I an Assamese what would mean that if I'm an Assamese what would that imply uh, so if you ask anybody probably the instinctive reaction if you're asking that person in Delhi you will say I'm from the northeast if you ask somebody in the northeast they will immediately say, oh, I'm from Nagaland, I'm Naga. If you ask somebody in Assam, probably they'll say, oh, not only, you know, Assamese, I'm from Upper Assam. So there are these multi-layered identities and there are various levels of affiliations which people either denounce at some point, ascribe at some point, prescribe at some point. So one is the overarching political identity of the nation state, like, I'll never, I'll never tell anybody in the United States, I'm from Northeast. Doesn't mean anything. I'm Indian of the region. Um, you know, despite uh, all these internal disputes and the conflicts that are happening, we always say blanket term, we are from Northeast. Um, and there's a whole package attached to being from the Northeast if you are living in India. Uh, there are also state centric. Um, Associations like uh, if you are in Meghalaya, if you are from Assam, it is it clearly defines a hills and plains identity. So there are state-centric association. There are also local uh, special identities within the states. Each state, uh, for example, if you are from Guwahati and you are applying for a job in Guwahati, and uh, there is a mighty possibility that you might be considered for the job. But if you are from say the southern tip of Assam, which is known as the Barak Valley, between Bangladesh, Manipur, Mizoram, and Tripura, uh, people will say, oh, you are not local. The, so also, there's very, very special relationship that you have of which area you are coming about, coming from. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are constitutional <coughs> identities. You are either a scheduled tribe, a scheduled caste, the new com uh, communities, which are more and more classified, um, cause under the constitutional, um, you know, positive reservation schemes like other backward caste, more other backward caste, and all these things are there, all these identities are there. Uh, so, a lot of these identities tend to work out the relationship with the state, power sharing, uh, ethnicity. 
nationalistic struggles, etc. Et so it's a complex whole lot of ideas that they're dealing with. Even, even common people who are either a part of the movements or are not a part of the movements. Uh, I'd like to go back a little bit to history because I feel I don't understand the region if I don't understand its history. And it's quite essential to understand why there's so much of uh, definitional struggle going on over who people are in the Northeast. Uh, it became a part of the British uh, colonial India quite late, and I'm, I'm sure you, many of you are aware of it. It was after the uh, Treaty of Yandabu in 1826 that it becomes a part of colonial India. Uh, and uh, almost immediately after that, uh, tea, wild tea is discovered in Assam, in the uh, eastern part of Assam, and it immediately becomes a pa part of uh, the rapidly expanding British uh, trading network. And capitalism arrives in the northeast with tea plantations and cash, and um, also a labor-intensive in economy develops, though it's an enclave economy. Uh, there are also possibilities, uh, economic possibilities explored as um, they gradually make uh, settled wealth, wetterized cultivation the, ex uh, the most dominant pattern of revenue extraction, uh, as opposed to the comparatively uh, loose mobile um, shifting pattern of cultivation, which was practiced even in the plains, not necessarily only in the hills. Gradually, coal timber and oil also emerge as commodities of exploitation. And cash, crop like, um, cash crops like jute is introduced. So uh, the colonial discourse about the Nazis is that not only are they lazy natives, but they are very, you know, less of those lazy natives also to kind of beat them around to do any work. So it's a uh, area of abundance, but with no people. Uh, the maximization of revenue uh, needs, as, it, as the colonial state sees it, uh, kind of uh, doesn't, it becomes a huge issue for the colonial state to either find people to cultivate land, or to work in the jungles, or to do labor work in the plantations. Uh, this is the, uh, despite the fact that it, I have already mentioned this probably is a region where there's a lot of mobility happening from all over the all over the place like people moving in from the east and the west and this is a place uh, this is a point where the state's uh, implication or the state's role in making people move from one region to another becomes very very strong and uh, it is uh, capitalism makes people move into this area and uh, Slavery is abolished, um, or bonded labor is abolished to, in an effort to create more indigenous labor for plantation. It doesn't work out. Gradually, the first people, coercive migrations, begin from the states of. Uh, this is colonialism. Okay, anyways. These are the regions where people come from to Assam to work in the tea plantations of Assam. And the green line that I need to explain that those are the probably Marwari businessmen who arrived to fund a lot of uh, economic activities or to trade. And the red lines are the labor migrations towards Assam. What I have not shown here is uh, the third most important wave of migration that was from East Bengal of peasant communities who settled in Assam. 
So, and a very small percentage of people moving in from Bengal and also from East Bengal to work in the offices as official babudams, babudam or in the plantations. The, therefore, there is suddenly towards the later part of the 19th century presence of many other people who necessarily have not been there for a long period of time. The last migration probably of any importance that happened in the Northeast was towards the 18th, late 18th century, uh, in the 18th century in Mizoram, when the Kukichin tribes moved, uh, tribes moved <coughs> from Manipur across to settle in some parts of Mizoram. Um, uh, this, this is um, the situation as more and more people get drawn into the area and it became, becomes a much more demographically heterogeneous area with uh, and the processes of assimilation that were probably going on at some levels um, come to a halt at this point. Uh, what also emerges at this point is uh, the effort of the colonial state in understanding the region. It's a quite a complex region and um, they, they feel that it is not similar to the notions of hierarchical, uh, you know, hierarchical civilization that is present in rest of India, the notions of caste and tribe that they have developed over the years in India cannot be applied smoothly in the northeast. There is an enormous amount of fluidity of practices and beliefs, uh, not only in religion or in culture, but also in economic activities, which cannot make them pin down people so easily. And also, it's a very mobile area; people are continuously moving. There's a desperate attempt by the colonial state to put down people into, fix people into categories, which of course everybody knows. But uh, they feel it doesn't somehow simply sit comfortably with the racial unity of India. So what emerges is therefore uh, quite complex notions of like how hills and plains uh, constitute two different uh, identities in Assam how planes are gradually moving towards becoming more and more um, indigenized uh, or Indianized, more and more Hinduized, and how the hills are were in a process of becoming degenerate like the rest of India or rest of Indians, but the sturdy savage tribal can be still be saved if suddenly the, the communication between the hill and the plain is, is regulated by the colonial state. There's also therefore a notion at some levels to fix identities between the hills and the plains. Uh, also a notion to uh, make identities much more real in the sense of, one good example is of course the Naga case. There are so many tribes which suddenly become termed the one generic term of Naga. Uh, there was also a preference that was um, preferential treatment that was gradually getting organized in the sense um, the the hill areas, the like the areas of Arunachal Pradesh, I need to find Arunachal Pradesh, Nagaland, Manipur, Mizor, Manipur and Tripura are princely states, but the other are the hill areas, and uh, they are either governed uh, with the notion of isolation that there should not be any interference of like regular political reforms or changes that are going on in the plains in the hills. There is a distancing of that, of that space. There's a logic of protection that the, 
colonial state develops and which unfortunately or fortunately you can say I think it's unfortunate that the post-colonial state appropriates that knowledge. There's a huge amount of appropriation of knowledge that was developed by the colonial state, by the post-colonial Indian state. And it is not just the post-colonial Indian state and its administrative practices that appropriate these uh, notions, but it is also uh, the movements that appropriate these notions of indigeneity and difference. It's, I need to say something about history writing also at this point. So um, it becomes like a logic that follows that um, constitutional notions of protection of customary laws and pra practices, uh, preferential pos uh, positive discrimination in favor of the scheduled tribes, um, all kind of collapse within a ethno-territorial framework. The notion of tribe and a constitutional protection as defined by the Constitution of India has to be regulated within a space. For example, if you are a tribe in a particular region, you are a tribe as long as you are of the region. If you have shifted from the region, it's, 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 I think it's a little complicated. Uh, if you have shifted out of the region, moved out, you are no longer a tribe. That like the Bodos who live in Karbianglong, it's a district of Assam, are not scheduled tribes because only the Karbis living in Karbianglong are scheduled tribes. There is a collapsing of geographical um, territorial identity with constitutional ethnic identities. Uh, there's also, therefore, uh, because there have been so much of boundary reshaping and carving out of spaces, there's always this possibility that there is space for political mobilization along those lines which can achieve some goals. Uh, I think, okay. So tribes caste, despite its fluidity of uh, changes that were taking place, become fixed at a certain point and refuse to move. And people start ascribing these notions in political articulation. One of the good cases of it is the Bodo movement that um, took place in the 80s. But as early as 1920s, we see the Bodos continuously using the term uh, terms of census in articulating their separateness from the Hindu, caste Hindu Assamese. Um, so what is it that makes Assam such a volatile place to be uh, as far as identities and uh, violence and moments are concerned? Um, what happens also is that I can I have to go back. Uh, one of the dominant identities that emerged in colonial Assam is uh, a linguistic identity. As the British arrive, colonialism arrives in Assam, Bengali is uh, imposed as an official language and it is believed the, the official propaganda believes that Assamese is a dialect of Bengali and therefore can be used by people. People will learn to use the Bengali language. Uh, it, is, uh, it is imposed somewhere around 1930s, uh, 1830s and continues to be used, but around the 19, 1850s there are movement by the nascent Assamese middle class 
and the American Baptist Mission in re-establishing Assamese as a separate language by itself and uh, putting it back as an official language to be used in courts and government offices. I, lo I look at this point as an important juncture for the Assamese-speaking people. I'm going to now categorically clarify that when I me mean Assamese people, they did not necessarily mean Assamese-speaking people. They might might be bilingual, but the Assamese-speaking people probably it is for, for them this is a point where linguistic nationality becomes an overarching concern. Uh, after the reimposition of Assamese as an official language, the there, there's no movement as such happening. The Assamese middle class starts writing in Assamese. There's a lot of literature and lang uh, language uh, that is, you know, work on language that has been done at this point. Uh, but around the 1920s, uh, when the census first notes that uh, there are migration of peasant communities from East Bengal, which necessarily is not a foreign country, that it's not, it is still a part of colonial India. Uh, the Assamese middle class, this is the beginning when they start writing in the local magazines that there is a fear of us, the Assamese speaking people, be becoming minoritized in the region. This is also probably added on by concerns about Nepali grazing, graziers migration into Assam. Um, the, the multiplication or the growth, demographic growth of the uh, tea garden coolie population, which uh, now no longer work, the ex-tea garden uh, plantation laborers no longer work in the tea gardens, but have started settling in the valley and taking up agricultural land. Uh, there's also a concern that um, the Bengali-speaking people who are there are now becoming numerically dominant as a group. So there is always a phobia or a fear of becoming marginalized in their own region, own space. Gradually in the 1930s, the 1931 census in fact is very, very important because the census superintendent clearly says that there are hordes, this is the term here, hordes of you know, Muslim peasants coming from Bangladesh and this, they are going to very soon take over the whole of the valley. And um, the Assamese and the indigenous tribes will be nowhere there. In fact, he predicted in the next 30 years or so, there will be no Assamese speak speaking people. But I'm still surviving and I'm well and kicking. <laughs> so is the language. <laughs> so. Um, there is, by 1930s, a severe fear about the, the fate, of, fate of the Assamese people. Uh, this is um, more rarefied because the census, uh, through the census, because of the representation at the 1935 Act that is almost going to be implemented and uh, the numerical, uh, I think, numerical games that happen after this point, as far as representation is concerned, gets very well c closely connected with census representation. And this is a moment when the Assamese speaking people start a strong, in a sense, strong effort in convincing the tribes of the Brahmaputra Valley, more specifically, as returning themselves as Assamese. 
SM is speaking. So there is a huge change from the 1901, 1910, uh, 1911, 1921, and 1931 census. There is, there is a sharp rise in, in the 1921 census of indigenous animist people. Again, in 1931, there is a fall because there is a serious con you know, concerted effort by the SMEs people to make of being it being clubbed together with East Bengal, that possibility doesn't arise. There is therefore a communalization of politics, and there are lots of many chauvinist, asmist Hindu groups at this point who, along with you know some 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 connections with the Hindu Mahasabha, make an effort in making making it clear that Assam Assam is equal at many levels to Hindu. Hindu population and also the tribes which have been so far categorized as animists can be now called as Hindus. Uh, after 47, uh, one presumes that 47 probably could have led to a lot of communal violence in the region, but it doesn't happen. But in the decades of 50s and 60s, there is, there is a gradual escalation of violence, sporadic violence starts happening. There are clashes between um, Bengalis and Assamese. Bengali signboards in the Brahmaputra Valley are taken down. Marwaris are sometimes, Marwari businessmen are sometimes attacked. Uh, in the 1970s, one census, there is an effort that the Bengalis who have settled in Assam, uh, by the simple logic of being there for the last 80 years or so, should return Assamese as a mother tongue, their mother tongue. Uh, and there is also a growing suspicion after the Bangladesh war that the more and more people probably will be coming in and this would really threat the demographic balance uh, and it will lead to a shift in favor of Bengali speaking and probably Muslim people. So despite it being a continuously, uh, uh, I think, concerted effort to make the movement seem as nationalistic, it is also hugely communal in many respects. And this is probably a consideration that is now become more and more, people are becoming more and more aware of as, uh, like the last uh, bomb blast series of bomb blasts that happened in Assam on the 30th of October. In, um, it clearly showed how communal uh, the whole region has become. One of the first reactions of some people who might talk to probably they said, oh, it's now going to become a Muslim province and uh, I think we should shift to some other places where the consideration is not whether Delhi has more bomb blasts than Assam, because Delhi also has a lot of cities for bomb blasts. But the consideration is that, oh, we cannot probably live there anymore. So uh, I'm coming back to this. This is, this is Assam. Um, a little parts of it has been cut off. Anyways, the movement therefore begins as an anti-foreigner movement. Uh, it's interesting how one defines a foreigner in Assam, present-day Assam. Um, it is not necessarily the people who came in after 71 who are foreigners, but also prob probably gradually anybody who came from rest of India could be classified as a foreigner, as an outsider. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, therefore, the more movement kind of becomes much more stronger and it becomes more and more chauvinistic in its uh, color. It began 
Around 1979, the movement really begins in an honest way. Uh, there was, uh, this was a time when electoral rolls were examined and the ASU, All Assam Students Union, uh, started uh, propagating at this point that the electoral rolls for the next elections were doctored. And there were millions of Bangladeshis in India, in Assam, uh, who have now become citizens and could therefore vote. And this needs to be checked. Uh, they started, therefore, targeting those people and start, started a movement demanding the exclusion, expulsion of the so-called Bangladeshi people. Uh, this, this, this does not clearly, this moment at that point, they do not clearly demarcate whether people coming before 1971 can be called as Bangladeshis or after 71. That in fact, it's, a, it's also in many senses a blanket term that has been they used for targeting Bengali-speaking people. Uh, during the period of 1979 to 80, this moment under the leadership of ASU, demands were made for detection, deportation of these illegal immigrants. They also started asking, uh, demanding in many senses, uh, about the back, the relative backwardness of the state and raised economic issues like the absence of development in the last uh, uh, last 40 years in the region. Uh, also put up the demand that resources of the state, it is one of the I think it, it produces the, highest, uh, the largest number of tea in India, and it's, uh, I think, it's the third biggest producer of oil in India. So these resources, which was, uh, which are resources of the people, have not the benefits of those resources have not come down to the people. It is the central government which have now, after British colonialism, has started colonizing Assam. And this, it's, uh, it's, they see it as a colonization, and they, they, there is an effort to pull back resources into the region so that there is development of the provinces and development of Assamese people. Uh, there is a slogan at that point which I clearly remember. Um, they said, we'll give our blood and uh, not our oil. And I was amazed at that point. I was a child, I, I thought, this is this is this was a slogan that I heard every day where schools were shut, and young men and women were in the streets all the time. And this is this is a slogan that I saw written on the walls. And we thought, really, it's quite unfair. The center is taking all our oil, and it's not even coming back. There is not the refineries are not working fine. And tea tea auction is held in Calcutta. There is a popular imagination of the people at that time that this movement captures, and the middle class largely identifies with this movement. Uh, this is also the time when uh, the ASU demands that uh, the other parts that were associated with Assam, like Meghalaya, uh, Arunachal, Assamese should be introduced in those areas as, uh, as a medium of instruction. It is around this point that the southern part of Assam, the districts of Kachar, Hailakandi, and Karimganj, uh, protest against such a move. Uh, it's a largely Bengali-speaking uh, area, and they oppose the imposition of Assamese as medium of instruction and official language. Um, this movement, 
despite capturing the mind of Assamese speaking people and being a very, very popular movement, this is a linguistic map, I don't think when read it because I wanted people to see how actually there is very small pockets where there are Assamese speaking, speaking people. It's largely an area where there's so many other groups of uh, linguistic communities live and most of them are bilingual. This is a point where the, this is a picture of the Assam movement, one of those peaceful moment, uh, you know, protests which were taken out in the streets. This is a moment when probably for the first time uh, other communities were living on this, under this notion of an umbrella you know, identity of the Asmis. Uh, gradually those identities fissured, the, the tensions emerging at this point. And as the movement continued to gain momentum by picketing, by boycott, more and more people, communities who were living in Assam got gradually got suspicious of the movement and its implications of its definitions of what a Assamese is and who is a Assamese and what would be the agenda of the movement after after it reaches a probably uh, you know some sort of a conclusion uh, it is around this point that the movement really becomes violent uh, one of the important incidents that happen around this time is that on the in February 1983 uh, Around 3,000 Bengali-speaking Muslims were massacred in a village called Nelly in Nogao. And um, this is the time the people, there's a lot of blame game happening. It is often for a long time being understood that it is the indigenous tribe of the region called the Lalus Tiwas who killed all these Bengali-speaking people. But it was also the hand of the Assam you know, ASU and the Assam Gano Shongam Parishad, uh, various chauvinistic group of people who systematically massacred the, peop uh, the Bengali-speaking people. This is a point when a lot of uh, criticism begins uh, around the movement and the way it's being conducted and um, what is what is its long-term plan, etc., etc. A lot of people get uh, targeted, people critic critical of the movement get targeted by the ASU and um, a lot of people are beaten up, who, people who protested against the movement and a lot of protesters are also being beaten up by the police and the army which are, who are present there, uh, controlling the movement. So the movement which becomes hinged around this uh, overwhelming notion of uh, blanket notion of Assamese gives rise to a lot of dissatisfaction. One of the first groups that splinter out of the movement is the All Bodo Students Association Union, uh, the APSU. It is, uh, the Bodos are one of the largest tribes of Assam and they demand that the Assams should be divided into 50-50, that the Bodos are also in a numerically strong uh, community and they do not identify with the Assamese, they have not identified with the Assamese from 1920s onwards despite believing in some level that there can be uh, multi-layered affiliations of being an Assamese but being a Bodo, they gradually start to move away from the blanket term of Assamese. Uh, around 1985, the ASU signs are accord with the, uh, the centre. The Assam Ganasangram Parishad emerges as the first regional party of Assam. Um, it becomes the Assam Gana Parishad, AGP. 
and the AGP wins a landmark victory and it, it's after the accord there is a jubilation and they promise to resolve the foreign national issue and build a golden Assam. Golden Assam is also a metaphorical term in the sense that the Ahoms believed, the Ahoms who migrated to Assam in the 13th century believed that Assam was a golden land of opportunities of wealth and they captured that imagery and said okay we'll now give you golden Assam, we'll bring back tea, wealth of the tea, we'll bring back the wealth of the oil. Uh, it is 10 more minutes. Oh, I still have to talk about Nagaland. Okay, uh, but I'll wind up. Thank you. Uh, it is around uh, 1979, this uh, armed wing of the ASU that is uh, there functioning, uh, which later comes to be known as the United Liberation Front of Assam. It, is, it has been there for quite some time, but after the Assam Accord of eight, 1985, the Alpha, the United Liberation Front of Assam, claims that the ASU sold itself out to the central government and it has uh, signed the accord on the basis of a compromise and it doesn't talk about the sovereignty of Assam or separate cessation of Assam. Uh, there are more xenophobic fears now and the Alpha kind of articulate that xenophobic fear of the people that uh, the ASU is actually not doing anything to deport illegal migrants from the region and it is through only through now a revolutionary struggle, armed struggle that the Alpha took on to itself that they would liberate Assam uh, from the operations of India. After, after the Assam movement, there is quite a dis dissatisfaction among a lot of sections of Assamese uh, people with the newly formed government. Uh, this is the time when Alpha gradually emerge in the scene. They, they start to behave as local Robin Hoods. They do, do good. They, they kind of... Um, this is a time when they deal with corrupt officials in rural areas where people do not otherwise have any access of dealing with them. Uh, they see that there's some sort of a development taking place. This is also a time when this is the time when they start running almost parallel governments in many localities. Uh, but over the years, uh, I'm making a gigantic leap here. Uh, the Alpha also in the from late middle of 1990s, yeah, around 1995 onwards, is no longer perceived by the common Assamese people as uh, as someone who could, somebody is, uh, as an organization which could address to the needs of the Assamese people. Uh, gradually, uh, the organization shifted its base from the rural areas because of army operation. It has shifted to Myanmar and Bangladesh and. Uh, there has been efforts to broker peace between the Alpha and the central government and the state government. It's still it's an ongoing process, but over the years, Alpha has um, indulged in extortion, in uh, killing, uh, violent incidents of killing uh, people whom they identified with the Indian state without uh, verification or without <coughs> without proper region, rational, which they used to earlier deal when they when they, they had committed a probably a bomb blast, Alpha would issue or write in the, the publicity secretary would write in local newspapers dealing with the whole 
thing of bomb blast why they have done it gradually there is a shift from there the, it's uh, it's uh, interaction or it's um, it's a communication with the indigenous uh, the local people is um, becoming lesser and lesser what's also happening is around, around this time is that the the Afsu movement escalates to the extent that they are armed militant groups of the Bodos, um, known as the BLT, the Bodo Liberation Tigers, and the National Democratic Front of Borderland, who make the Assam state and the center grow to a different process of negotiation. So, um, what, what I what I want to bring about is that there is a nationality struggle that is going on in Assam which talks about the Assamese identity and it talks about secession from India and exploitation from India. But within that region, within probably that identity, the composite identity at some point, there are fissures taking place. The Bodo says already carved out an uh, area for themselves. In 2006, the central government had an accord with the Boros, and <laughs> there's a territorial council which has been carved out in the province of Assam towards, towards the western part of Assam. Districts of um, some parts of Bongaigao, Kokrajar, Borpeta, and Dorong have been now made into a six scheduled area. And it's a territorial council. And it doesn't uh, have the same uh, pattern of government as it does for the rest of Assam. Uh, after 20 years of the Assam Accord in 18, uh, 1985, there's still people are still working on its implement implementation. The foreign national issue is still getting discussed. Uh, and now uh, there was a point when the Alpha included people, not just, um, I'm going to use the indigenous term, Okhomia Bhakhi, that means the Assamese speaking, but Okhomia Bhakhi, the Assam leaving, as a term to bring people together for the movement. That it, it, what they articulated was that colonialism of the mainland India of Delhi was fa far more dangerous and uh, it should be a foremost issue to be dealt with than the internal dynamics of ethno-nationalism. Uh, but despite that, uh, the definitions around the concept of being Assamese, the identity of Assamese or Khomia, is still contentious <coughs> because one of the latest um, Circulars taken out by the Alpha, they said that now the Nepali-speaking people of the region should move out because they have also come uh, probably a little earlier than the Bangladeshis, but they are, after all, outsiders. Uh, so it's the, the indigen uh, is really contentious now. This, uh, it's, it, for, for people living in the Brahmaputra Valley in Assam, to define or ascribe an identity for themselves has become tremendously a, a political choice, which probably most of us find it difficult to make. And uh, sometimes we are forced to make that choice. Uh, and the, and of, over the last couple of years, the activities of the Alpha has been really, really uh, <coughs> doesn't fall in the, within the ambit of its prescribed ideology of either asking for a separate state or looking for a parallel alternative developmental pattern for the Northeast, it has uh, become, to some extent, people suspect to be controlled by the designs of the National Socialist Council of Nagaland uh, 
to some extent shaped by the politics of ISI. Uh, and what, what, what Alpha right now is demanding is nobody is quite, quite clear of what, what is agenda. It is that there have been peacemaking efforts for the last five, six years, and it has not led to any successful peace talks as compared to what has, whatever is happening in Nagaland. Can I have five more minutes and talk about Nagaland a little sure, bit? Sure, sure. I just want to leave enough time for some questions okay. as well. Uh, Nagaland, um, these are the last blasts. This is Nagaland. As you can see, it's just uh, immediately borders Myanmar. And um, the people, uh, there are almost uh, like 23 major tribes in, uh, in Nagaland who are known by their own names. The major ones like Ao, Angami, Sema, Tankul, Mao, Zeliangrong, Rengma, Lotha, the whole lot of names. So let me not go into that. There are also Naga tribes living in Manipur, below the state, and in Arunachal, up there. Uh, it's all, of course, as I mentioned, it's a generic term used for uh, this whole varied community of groups of people. Uh, the, the cultural practices are different, the language they speak are different. In fact, most Nagas communicate with each other with this uh, combination of Assamese, Hindi, and Bengali known as Nagamese. Uh, and they don't, cannot understand each other's dialect. Uh, the Naga National Council, which was formed in 19, uh, 1946, uh, uh, was uh, mainly composed of the English-educated um, Christian middle class that was emerging. And it was around this point that they make a concerted effort around the debates going on of integration into the Indian state that the Nagas are a really different people and they would not like to get into the Indian Union. Before that, around, around 1929, the Naga Club made a petition to the Simon Commission that uh, political reforms that were being introduced should not be introduced into the Naga areas because the Naga people are really backward. They have nothing in common with the rest of India who are either Hindu or Muslims, and they are not neither of that. Uh, so uh, after after the Naga National Council makes this position very clear, there are a lot of negotiations that happen. There's a whole negotiation process that happens between Nehru and the NNC and the center and the state about the provisions under which the Naga region, the Naga Hill region, can be governed. Uh, the various schemes that they talk about, but uh, those talks of, of almost lead to nothing. The Akbar Hydri plan, that agreement that was worked out, uh, is a controversial plan, was a controversial plan, and the Nagas uh, debated about it and eventually accepted it part partially, despite being very, very suspicious of the, of the clause that said that after 10 years, the Nagas can decide their own fate. The, the, one of the earliest agreements said that. What the Ragas saw it as was a open invitation to secede from India to express their independence, become free. What the Indian state was thought of it was that the Nagas would eventually see the benefit of you know, becoming a part of Indian Union and stay with it. Um, around 1951, there is a voluntary plebiscite that is conducted in Naga Hills. And this is the time when FISO, one of the leaders of the Naga and National Council is quite powerful, and he he makes a makes a concerted effort to mobilize youth 
groups all over the state and make people vote in favor of it. Uh, there's an overwhelming majority of people, 99%, who votes in favor of the of independence. Uh, there is. Uh, they also therefore demand the right of self-determination. The talks that are going on do not lead to anything conclusive. conclusive. Uh, after 1953, there are measures being taken to gradually, forcefully control the movement of the NNC. There are mass arrests that take place. This is also a point when uh, slowly there are acts that are implemented in Naga Hills, like the Naga Hills Disturbed Area Ordinance, the Assam Maintenance of Public Order or, uh, Act, uh, the Armed Forces Special Power Act of 1858, which was later modified in 1972 and made much more draconian and powerful. Uh, this, this is the time that the movement gradually becomes more and more violent. The leaders go underground, they take military training, and there is a constant tension between the Indian Armed Forces and the Naga movement. Uh, I'm, I'm skipping a little bit here. And around 1960s, uh, the NNC comes into talks with <coughs> the center. And to the moderate sections of the NNC, Nagaland is made a separate state. They separate from Assam. They also sign a 16-point agreement. Uh, in 1975, there is an accord that is signed between the Indian state and the Naga, Naga state. Nagaland is therefore not only not governed by the sixth schedule, but it is governed by 370A. It's a special article that gives enormous autonomy to the re region without considering what the Nagas have been asking for, self-determination or independence. After the act of, uh, after the accord of 1975, the younger, more radical group of the Naga leadership move away from the movement, the NNC movement. This is led by two leaders, um, Muiva and Su. And they formed the Naga Socialist Council of, uh, National Socialist Council of Nagaland. Both the movement and there is a faction in the movement, and the NSN is split into two two groups now. But both fighting for the uh, struggling for the same goal. There is therefore in Nagaland right now a movement to secede from India. There is now a ceasefire. There is negotiation going on, but there is also a turfor between the NSN Kaplang and NSN IM Isaac Muiva group. Uh, but this, uh, the ceasefire conditions of the Nagas are pretty much more complex than any other ceasefire negotiations that were happening in the Northeast. They wanted first the peace talks to be not held in India, but outside. Uh, they also wanted not, not to compromise on the notion of sovereignty of, the Nag of Nagas. And there's still some areas where neither the Indian state or the Nagas are willing to talk about, for example, self-determination. But I guess gradually it is becoming very clear to the Naga leadership that probably Indian state would not give them the right to secede away. Uh, so there are truths that the talks that are happening, but this is also, uh, the Nagas also put the condition that they wanted uh, 
the troops to exit out of the territorial space of Nagaland. They wanted to have a ceasefire beyond territorial limits, that is beyond the limit of Nagaland. So what we have is now a gradual demand that not only does the Naga, existing Nagaland state need to be independent, but they have expanded the boundaries and collapsed it with Naga people or Naga groups in Arunachal, in Manipur, and in Myanmar. So their demand has now come to the formation of a greater Naga state. It's known as, it's what they call as Nagalim. Over this, the close relation of uh, militant groups like the Alpha and uh, the Karbi, Karbi National Volunteers, uh, the Manipur militant groups, there is a tension now. A lot of uh, these groups have fallen out with NSCN and the support base of the NSCN uh, as a leading uh, militant group in the region. Uh, and they have started uh, in the last couple of years, they have opposed Nagaland's uh, efforts to bring in Naga people or incorporate Naga people, mobilize Naga people in favor of Nagaland. Uh, it's also interesting to know that a lot of um, the mobilization that is happening in favor of Nagaland is not so much in Nagaland but probably in more so in Manipur because the Nagas of Manipur uh, also feel that they are completely continuously subsumed by the overwhelming uh, by the Maite population which is not numerically so strong but uh, control resources in the valley. I, I know I'm going to end now. Okay. Uh, so over the time, what we see is therefore uh, escalation of tensions on definitional ideas of identities. For example, uh, should uh, small tribes who never ascribed to becoming a Naga have, have they started becoming Naga in the 1980s, 1990s, as late, late, late as that? And uh, should, uh, is Nagaland therefore encouraging at some levels uh, a more homogeneous identities for the, for the Nagas, uh, trying to break down the differences uh, or trying to assimilate uh, people without considering the differences, but in the same time, uh, encouraging differences of uh, rights or <coughs> demands in the Brahmaputra Valley. In a similar way, uh, the Alpha in Assam is again trying to subsume a lot of identities into a more homogeneous identity without taking into consideration in the, that in the 1980s and the 1990s, uh, identities have either become fused together or fractured to a great extent. Uh, what is interesting is that the Indian state deals with all this situation with either giving a constitutional uh, provisions, making changes in the constitution or making changes in governance patterns, like the creation of BTC, Boro Territorial Council within Assam, a lot of uh, autonomous dis district councils which have been created in Assam for governing tribes, uh, the presence of 370A in Nagaland and uh, uh, the presence of six schedule as a governance for disturbed areas or tribal people. Uh, one needs to understand in the last 60 years that these are efforts that have been made on and off through various peace accords. Uh, these are constitutional changes that have been, that have been taking place 
along with, of course, uh, pumping in a huge amount of um, money into the region for developmental purposes. The, does, does, the, does the Constitution of India or does the state of con uh, India have the political will uh, to deal with it as now they have started dealing with it as a political issue? Uh, or for a long time they saw it as a law and order issue, but they think it's a political issue now, which is a step uh, forward. But are they willing to just experiment with the existing uh, par parameters of the Constitution? or? Are they willing to go beyond that? There is, I think, a political possibility that the Indian constitution is democratic enough to expand and experiment to a great extent. But um, one also needs to know that uh, the existing uh, probably frameworks of looking at governing tribal people uh, needs to be re-understood and a lot of colonial packages that we carry in our constitution need to be understood in the framework <coughs> of uh, really multicultural uh, societies and go their governance and not necessarily what we have arrived at uh, in 1947 as a you know departure point thank you thanks so much.